then the experiment was a success. No. Welcome to the fifth episode of Liberty Lifestyle Podcast. In this episode, Tyler sits down with Eric McCool of Permagora to discuss Eric's latest work in permaculture, agorism, and the journey towards living a free and prosperous life. Eric is an author and permaculturist whose study and work for the last six years have been focused on localization, community organizing, and sustenance gardening. In the course of this work, Eric has began to take note in matters of critical concern to the planet and society, developing an interest for activism and alternative media. Inspired by the many independent journalists who have been expanding the quality and reach of alt media, he began to develop ideas for content and programming that would bridge the worlds of permaculture and alternative media. Eric now resides in Southern Oregon with his wife and three daughters, growing gardens and exploring the natural beautiful places of the Northwest. You can now listen to Liberty Lifestyle on iTunes, Android, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and any platforms that accept RSS feeds. Find us on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, Steemit, and DTube. Please subscribe to Liberty Lifestyle's website and follow us on our social media platforms. Thank you for joining us on this journey. We look forward to having you with us in the future on the Liberty Lifestyle Podcast. Giving truth the liberty of appearing. All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you for joining us tonight here on the Liberty Lifestyle Podcast. I'm really excited to bring the guest we have on tonight, Eric McCool of Permagora.com. He's the founder of that website, and as far as I know, kind of the concept, bringing those two words and ideas together. And he's also an author, um, with his most recent book being Portland, and it's a book that he really wants to promote, and it covers uh, different ideas. Uh, fiction book, uh, I believe, right? Or a novel yeah, it's a series. Novel. And uh, you write many other books. You guys can find those at permagora.com, and we'll talk about those. We'll get into more of that here tonight. As well as uh, permaculture and agorism, counter-economics, and really uh, liberty lifestyle, like how Eric... Um, in, involves himself in, in growing more freedom in the communities or in his uh, worldview, really just kind of promoting the concept of freedom, not only promoting it, but really living uh, that sort of lifestyle and getting into what it takes to uh, bring that about. And, and the conscious agora or the permagora, um, I really like that concept. So we'll, get, we'll definitely get into more of that here uh, tonight. And Eric, why don't you tell us about some of your history growing up and uh, kind of get back as far as you want to go and take as much time as you want, kind of uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you kind of got up to this point in this journey, and uh, then we'll get into more of the, the other topics a little bit later. Sure thing. I actually was born in Texas. I was raised here. I'm here now visiting, and so I, I was raised here and... My world was my church when I was growing up. I was deeply involved, and the youth group was kind of a, a leader in that community at that age just because I was there all the time, and my family had a history with the church. So that was my world, and I, at the time when I was like 16, 17, I was under the impression that my life destiny was to become a minister and had that sort of evangelical. I really wanted to share what I believed to be a powerful message, the message of love, forgiveness, the message of Jesus as I understood it, and 
that didn't stick though. I left the church right after the time I graduated and I started to feel a lot of doubts about the truth of some of the stories and the institution itself and how do we know this and who, who, who tells us that this is how it's supposed to be? Like who tells us what is or isn't true about God or any of these concepts? My doubts led me onto a whole new journey and I moved up to the Northeast to Boston and I studied there, got all into science and academia and really sort of thought that it was an alternative explanation. It's an alternative mythos to how do we explain what's going on here in the world? And then from there, I started to doubt that I wanted to just run the rat race and live the status quo. I read Thoreau. I started to go backpacking in the mountains and started thinking, why don't we just live natural and free? Why do we have to do all this other stuff? And this uh, this journey led me on along. I could go on. I mean, it judged, I, my, my journey to permaculture and my journey to trying to make the world better took place over many years. But essentially, I dropped out of school up in Boston and started just taking my freedom back for myself. I decided I didn't want to go into debt. I didn't want to have my time filled up with all this stuff that I didn't really want to do. And I just wanted to be free and to go places and hang out and to travel and to be with my friends. So I, I embarked on this long, like six or seven year journey of vagabonding and just traveling as cheaply as possible, going wherever I had a place or an option or sometimes just striking out into the unknown. And along the way, I sort of began to understand that what I was doing was a little selfish and that, yeah, the world is a mess, and I could just try and hide from that. I could just try and go out and have a good time and live my own life. But what kind of world are we creating, and what do I really want to let, let, let this happen is what it came down to. And a spiritual experience that occurred when I was swimming in a lake in Canada really lit me up and got my sort of evangelical zeal that I'd always had growing up turned back on but with a new mission. This time it's to save the planet from the madmen, the criminals who are destroying it, and also to – create solutions to all these problems so that we can all just live happy and free because I knew that's what we really ought to be doing is just living and enjoying ourselves. So I started researching what what to do about all these problems. I was led to permaculture, and not long after that, I moved up to Oregon and got started studying permaculture, living in various projects, meeting all sorts of great people, really discovered a whole new world. When I got up there, I was like, I can't believe I didn't know any of this was going on. I always thought, oh, hippies, yeah, peace and love and you know, long hair and all these things. That's the sort of nutshell image you have, but really what I didn't understand coming from here was that there's this whole new culture, this whole new world that's an alternative universe really that exists right now in this dimension with us in all sorts of places around the world. But there's a big concentration of people like that in the Northwest, and I learned all about their culture. My book Portland kind of covers this experience for me through a fictional character who also moves there, meets a girl who is all involved, and – all of a sudden, this whole world is opened up to him, and he's like, wow, I never knew this was possible. I never knew people were doing this cool stuff, building these awesome natural building eco-homes and doing permaculture, having all this food just growing on their land all the time. And it's much more wild and free than conventional agriculture. So when I got lit up about all of that, I sort of honed further in on what is my role and what is my job. And I was always a writer. I wrote throughout my 20s, and I wrote several books, which – I have on, on sale on the web, but they're not the, – my first three are not really representing my message, what I really believe about the world. Portland is. It's about permaculture, agorism, home economics, community building, localization. All of these ideas are sort of part of the plot and what the characters are using. So anyhow, I've studied permaculture since 2008. I got my certificate in 2010 and – I have worked on different projects. I've done a lot of house sitting and basically grounds like taking care of like putting in gardens. Whenever we go live for at people's places, we often add gardens and add awesome installations. And that's kind of been my 
my experience, I haven't had one project that I've worked on for all this time that – so my, my, my education in permaculture is scattered. I know a lot about a lot of the different topics, but I don't have years of experience in any one thing other than social coordination, outreach, doing events, doing – you know, creating media. Media is really what I learned I needed to be doing after I attended Acapulco – and Acapulco in Acapulco for the first time in 2016. I discovered – I mean, I'd already seen alternative media people. I was already following guys like Luke Radowski and Dan Dix and James Corbett and Adam Kokesh. And then when I met some of these guys in person, I was like, I should be doing this. Like, this is what my, what I would be good at would be spreading these ideas because I was trained and raised from a young kid, is it from a young age to spread ideas that I was excited about. So, anyhow, that's what I'm doing now. I started Permagora that year in 2016. And I am about a year in, a little over that now, and I started the world tour in 2017, and we've been touring. My family and I have been on the road all year. We're looking for a place. We might have a place that we're going to move to soon. We're, we're hoping. But we've just been touring, trying to meet people and trying to spread these ideas and find out really what is going on, who's doing what. I want to see what other people's ideas are, what their projects are, and that's what I'm trying to do. But I guess I'm getting ahead of myself here because you just asked about my background and I took you right up to, to, to the moment. <laughs> no, no, that's that's great. Thanks for going into that. And that's uh, interesting that you – was that a ministry and like the Catholicism? I'm, I'm not like – No, uh, it was Baptist Church. A Baptist so ba- Church. Yeah, and my dad was in the Baptist Church. He was a youth minister and a recreation minister, a singles minister. And I saw him. He got – paid a salary to organize fun events for people in the church to put together softball leagues and volleyball and whitewater rafting trips and backpacking trips and all this cool stuff. And the, the Baptist church has a great, especially the one I came from, First Baptist Church San Antonio, it just has great programs. They have awesome, fun stuff for everybody to do. And they're doing so much right about how to do community, in my opinion. They're doing so much good community work, better than any in Eco Village I've ever seen. They're just using this script. They're using this, this this religious script that I don't vibe with, and a lot of people don't. And so one of my goals is to see about how can we bridge the worlds between this eco-permaculture movement and these community ideas with existing infrastructure and bodies of people in the church who may be kind of coming to terms with the fact that some of what they've been taught in their religion isn't true and that we might need to you know, change the change up the message a little bit. Anyhow, that's that's another yeah. whole idea. Yeah, no, I saw some of your stuff online um, with uh, some people at a church. Um, so I see what you were doing like there, like trying to show that there are people within these uh, churches that are taking in the ideas of a, like permaculture and gardening and, and reintegrating that into more of like a something that should be in the forefront of that type of a community. Yeah, um, kind of like you were saying with the. Um, earlier we were talking, and we'll get into this more too, about bringing uh, communities together or even like planned intentional type communities where everyone's kind of in on the concept of this. So you're not trying to convince a bunch of people around you that aren't into it, but you're moving right. to a place where everybody can already have the basic ideas of what they want to do. And it's pretty basic stuff too, and, and we'll talk about that too. But then um, how old were you when you dropped out of school? You said, I'm interested in that because... Okay, so I dropped out twice. First time, it was not as really dropping out. I was just taking a break. I didn't know how long. But see, I was uh, 21 that first time, and then I took a year off, and then mainly under pressure from my parents, I got back in just to appease them. I figured I could get done in another year. I went for a year and a half more and still didn't finish, and so then I guess I was 24 or 20 – 23, 24 the second time. I went for four years and did all the hours and got all the credits I would have needed for a degree. 
which is the huge irony because I never got a degree. I transferred schools twice. I started at Baylor, went to Boston University and dropped out for the year. When I started up again, I moved back to San Antonio and went to UTSA and went for another year and a half. Got a total of four years and no degree, but yeah. you know, well, I, don't, probably I don't regret that off. too often. You know, I mean, most of the time that I wish I had it is when I'm in a pinch and I'm kind of desperately looking for a job that I don't really want. Right. And I see some that come by, and I'm like, oh, if I had a degree, I could apply for that. Uh, but almost every time that that, that, that go, comes and goes, I'm kind of glad that it did. Right. because You don't want to work not, somewhere that's that old school anyway. I mean, because not really. <laughs> a degree doesn't, doesn't uh, prove what a human being can do necessarily. It just proves that they could memorize a lot of things and then jump through the hoops of what was being taught, which isn't nor, uh, necessarily in accordance with any kind of truth, really. Right, right. It's just the, you know, the established belief system. So I'd say you're better off for not going through and fully graduating through that degree system because, you know, I don't know, there's there's 360 degrees in a circle. And so <laughs> you, don't, you don't really want to focus on just one degree. Hey, I don't need just that you one. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> no, I don't know. Um, but then also, have you heard of like the idea of a resource-based economy um, or um, anything like that? I think that's from like the Zeitgeist movement. Yeah. Um, where um, when you move to Oregon, I think there's a lot more people up there that are kind of, like you said, trying to do that type of a thing, like uh, you know, bring about a resource-based economy. Or could you right. speak on that a little bit? Sure. I definitely see that, and it happens everywhere, but it was easier to find up there. My introduction to agorism wasn't from the word or from the intellectual side of it. It was from the reality of it when I moved to Oregon. Uh, largely, it had to do with the cannabis scene because cannabis was being grown medically and legally, but it was all these little loopholes that allowed people to make a lot of money doing it. And it was legal to have the plants. The sheriff would leave you alone. You didn't get busted for growing, but technically we were doing agorist business. We were, we were doing transactions that the government wouldn't approve of. And I kind of happened into that via eco-villages and you know, via groups of people that were trying to fund their projects through this, and it was all cash. And so this cash reality changes things, and you get into a much more – now, when you say resource-based economy, that's something that – it's hard to really get to that at the full degree because people still need those Federal Reserve notes to do a lot of things. And there is a lot of counter-economic stuff where people are buying and selling outside of the dollar – People are just trading resources, um, but when it comes to actually having like a product that you create, if like that end of it, the resource, the economy is built on what you actually make. That is the ticket. That's the answer that I think is really important for us to realize is that our modern economy has been taken over by dissemblers and usurers and people who are just deceiving us, and they're making things way more complicated than they need to be in order for them to cheat the system and just skim off the top and live for really not doing that much. And once we get back to making our economy based on real goods that somebody creates and that have real value, then Re I reality. think... Yeah, the, the old reality <laughs> that used to exist before the criminals took charge and started creating these systems that allow this kind of thing to grow. So um, my time in Oregon really showed me a lot about how that works. Because first of all, there were resources. There was timber... And a lot of people are doing farming and growing food. The cannabis industry is the staple of the whole economy up there practically. That and the timber are the two biggest industries in the state. And they, they, you know, they're, they're, they're growing something that people want. Imagine that. If you grow something that people really want, you can make a living doing it. And it makes perfect sense that all of our economic system ought to be predicated and based on – predicated by and based on some real get real goods and values. And I really got a good taste of that 
aside from just making my own living, which, by the way, when I first moved there, I didn't make much money. I wasn't even – I was, you know, got, got my medical card and I was growing for real patients that I was delivering medicine to. And for many years, it made hardly any money at all. Just – it was a side thing because I was working for a guy for, for several years on a project. That it was all funded. He had money. He had the land. He didn't mind paying for everything, so it was real easy. And so whatever we made – and the agora was just sort of on the top, sort of icing. And um, yeah, but anyway, I I feel like we're we're in a place where we have to really redefine what we think of making a living as being. And I'm trying to encourage through my work. I'm trying to present options to people to get out of the rat race, to get out of this prison, this mental prison of having a job, having all these bills. That you know the the the, the phrase people always say is, well, that's just how it is. That's just how the world works. And I'm trying to break that mantra and say that's not how it has to work. We don't all have to be just laden with all of this debt and all of this obligation to go out and make so much money every month only to give most of it back away to people who are maybe not even doing us any service at all, particularly when it comes to taxation or you know paying for registering your car and all this nonsense theft that the government forces on us basically um, – that's that's what it works. What it what it takes. It takes people redefining what they think of as their obligations and finding another way to get by. Like, how do you get your food, your shelter, right. your energy? These are basic questions that we need to have. We need to have answered. Permaculture mm-hmm. answers those questions. Agorism, voluntarism answers the questions of yeah, but how could we do that? Because that's not how the world works, right? right? Well, let's change the way the world works. And then once it does, we can feed ourselves, we can clothe ourselves, we can make products. Humans like to make things. We're good at it. Mm-hmm. And I think. People are missing out. Hardly anyone in this world makes anything. Young people today, I mean, some do, but a lot of them don't learn how to do anything with their hands. It's all on the screen and on the computer, and that's right. a real real dangerous thing, I think. And I'm really promoting the old-fashioned get out there and get your knees dirty, ride your bike, climb the trees, build stuff, make stuff. The old, like, camp model, right? You're making wallets and you're doing archery and all that stuff. Like, that's not that's not a joke. That's the real deal. That's what we ought to be doing, all of us. We Absolutely. all ought to be living that life. <laughs> Absolutely. In my humble opinion. <laughs> yeah. And I'm trying to build more freedom for myself in, in all those directions you mentioned, and I'm, I'm aware of all kind of the stuff you're talking about here. It's totally so many things we could go off and talk about from what you just went over. Um, and so we're probably jumping ahead of ourselves a little bit here. We'll, we'll put on the brakes a little. Um, but no, really, um, the cannabis, like you said, being a, more of like a resource that could really take us out of a lot of the problems that we're having um, – that we're facing really it, it's something that's real it's not something that's uh you know a theory or if you look at colorado or the states like oregon that are that are showing us how this could work you know regardless of people worried about that that cannabis is a drug or cannabis your children are going to go start smoking cannabis or something i mean these are all this like old you know reefer madness fear paradigm of right. what we're talking about here because even just hemp itself where it's still you know illegal to grow hemp the hemp, just the hemp stock, you know, not the buds, not the flowers, not the plant that you could use to smoke or whatever. Um, that's illegal in a lot of places still, and even that plant itself could be used, you know, in so many different ways. And we've talked about that on the podcast here. And the emperor wears no clothes, you know, showing like the forty thousand different uses of the hemp plant, um, yeah. you know. And and then we all we and you can look at the interests that are keeping that type of stuff illegal still, or that made it illegal when originally, you know. Um, and, and that all does tie into the ec- economic system that's still going on. It's this predatory system, like you said, that's just being held up by really just ignorance. I was just talking about this last night 
with somebody like the only thing that holds it up is ignorance because once you know it's then you know and you're not going to tolerate what what it is you're not going to fall and for it you're going to try to get out of that situation which is you know I'm on that journey and the Liberty Lifestyle podcast is is not because I'm trying to show everybody how great I am and how freedom oriented I am I'm still on that journey myself and still trying to get down that road and I'm bringing on guests that I'm learning from as I go through and edit these interviews and see what they're doing and and just kind of keep my mind on that topic because that's how we bring about you know the change that we're trying to bring about is just have these conversations and like you were saying like start doing more media and that's why I want to help you do that like I'll you know take this time with you and put this out and hopefully it'll get to the right people that you know keep this conversation going and take these ideas and go and do something with it you know and yeah get off of youtube and go out in the fields and start doing doing the work and maybe have your earphones on while you're out there working but that's right you know get out of the office environment which is something i'm working on myself i still earn federal reserve notes through a corporate environment but i'm also you know in my community trying to build uh a more like a real agora that's not like a hidden black market thing like something my children could potentially grow up in one day and just operate that way without it having to be like this like we're having to push forward some boundary like we want that boundary just to be open now and not have any more resistance against these ideas um yeah so before we go too much further like i said we've talked about agorism quite a bit on this podcast uh we had derek bros on um, Skylar Collins talked. We talked about agorism. Um, Danilo Cuellar. We also talked about that. And then Bill Church. He was talking about the resource-based economy and showing how he's kind of doing that in where he lives up in Washington, uh, kind of up there in your region, I guess. Uh, you also said you were um, going to be going to North Carolina for something. You said, but we'll so get into that. But also kind of break down. Uh, permaculture for the people that might not even be aware of what that is and then you know how that bridges into agorism you've kind of been touching on this stuff already but kind of take a step back what is permaculture you know why why do we need to be talking about it what is it versus maybe agriculture Um, yeah go ahead with that permaculture is a design system a design science it teaches you how to observe your environment, figure out what's already happening, and then make the right changes to where what you want will occur. Now, this is largely applied to agriculture and production of food. Permaculture, the word, comes from permanent agriculture because the founders realized that agriculture as we now know it is a very flawed system that's based on Extracting all the biological fertility from an area until it's exhausted and and ruined, desertified. And that's the history of empire. The march of empire has been seizing and controlling new lands and deforesting them to build ships and to build buildings and mining the soil, mining the, 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 the minerals for gold and metals and just all these destructive processes for wealth inside of an artificial system called civilization. That process Agriculture is part of it. Agriculture was invented in the style that we still use so that they could feed their armies and so that they could transport large amounts of storable, uh, less perishable food products like grains. So the premise of permaculture is that that's a a dead system that's just causing us to to, to kill the planet. It's a suicidal system and that we must 
learn to get our food in harmony with the rest of the life on this earth. And, and so to practice permaculture, we imitate nature. We do things that are more natural and we build systems that flow with nature rather than fight it. And there are a whole lot of aspects of what makes permaculture permaculture. There are some bullet points I could go over real quick, like focus on perennials. We're not just getting most of our food from these annual crops that require us to constantly go and replant them, constantly go and till the ground. That's another thing, tilling. We don't till as much in permaculture. We try and let the soil build from the top down by adding things, by mulching, and by letting the fungal networks develop down there and the, the bacterial networks and the microlife that lives in the soil. That's a whole community that we start to pay attention to, and we find that when we create that, Everything, everything blooms much better. Everything grows better when it's got healthy soil to grow in. And I skipped ahead on the, the perennial. Perennials and annuals, if you don't know, are perennials are plants that stay alive for a very long time and continue to produce every year, like a tree, an, an apple tree. It can live for 100 years, and it can give you apples every year. An annual is born, or rather, <laughs> comes out of the ground, lives for a season, and then dies. Sets seed and dies, like a tomato plant. So... If we focus more on perennials, we have less work to do. You don't have to go out and till. You don't have to go out and weed. You just basically go out and pick once a year. And you might water. You might have to deal with pests. But another aspect of permaculture is you don't do as much monoculture. You're not just growing fields and fields of one thing because that attracts pests and it denudes the soil of specific minerals and specific things that are needed for those plants. So if you have polycultures, if you have mixed orchards with lots of different kinds of plants – not only do you not denude the soil or attract the pests, but you also – those plants complement each other and do things for each other. There's all these symbiotic, symbiotic relationships that occur in nature, and we're trying to emphasize those and to trying to create more of the yield with less work. That's partly what permaculture accomplishes. But to put it simply, it's ecological use of the land with a, a, a system that we design ourselves based on ob observation and based on seeing what we have. What resources do we have available here? We see where the sun is, how much sun we have, how much shade we have, and what type of soil can we, you know, there's all these questions you have to answer when you look at a property and you do a permaculture assessment of it. And it's, 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 it's also a shift in thinking, like I was talking about earlier. It's a shift in a mindset. Our mindset with agriculture is that we're just trying to get the ground to give us the food we want. And we're not really in relationship with the land like we should be. And changing our mindset and looking at nature as something that is alive and has all these entities that have personalities and have culture. And to respect that and to try to build our culture on that, not make our culture an imposition on nature or a, a, a dominator, to, to be dominating nature. That's the main difference, which is why this gets into why this ties into agorism and voluntarism. Because permaculture is a less forceful system. It's a system that respects the rights of the other entities to exist. You don't go killing pests because pests have a purpose. If you have too many pests, maybe you don't have enough habitat for predators because you know there's a natural balance that occurs and we don't have to spray the forests with pesticide to kill pests because they self-regulate that. And permaculture is a culture. It's a mindset. It's a way of, a way of living, and you can apply it to many different things. And beyond gardening, it's, it, it deals a lot with natural building, deals a lot with architectural systems and uh, landscape architecture, how we design our landscapes, how we do, do 
installations with stone and berms and there's these things called swales where you can sink water into the soil and restore dry areas that are losing topsoil. You can add water to the soil and therefore more things will grow there and you can restore deserts. There's a guy named Jeff Lawton who has some great success stories of taking really, really dry desert places in Australia and the Middle East and over 15 years, he turns them into oases, beautiful places that produce tons of food with natural desert conditions catching the rain and storing it rather than letting it all wash away. So that is a glimpse at permaculture. It's a huge topic that could take you. Yeah. You, could, you could learn about it for years and never really get all of it, but you get the picture after a while of like, especially when you see permaculture systems in practice, you're like, whoa, this is different. And you see that it's a way of thinking as much as it is a method of actually gardening. Right. Yeah, that's that's great. And maybe we'll have another talk later down the road and we'll just get into more of like techniques. And I know you have other interviews out there. I'll link those in the bottom of this in the show notes as well, like because you've done quite a bit of work as well, just going out and showing what this can actually look like, yeah. you know, with with various uh, people that you've brought on. Um, I was just watching some some of those videos today and, and it's great. And it's not so I mean, when you look at these permaculture plots that are really mature, um, it's like a food forest, and somebody with the with an untrained eye might walk through and not even recognize half of the stuff as being food, right. right? Because we're so used to this rows and rows and rows of, of food. And I was going to say, you know, no, you're, you're totally wrong. What we need to do is we need to genetically modify seeds so we can put more chemicals on them, and then <laughs> we need to make you know force the taxpayers to subsidize these companies that have these patents, and these companies can't be sued if their products. Uh, harm anyone you know and that that's really what we need to do to have a, a sustainable system moving forward and to sure. feed the planet we need to poison people with pesticides you know and kill yeah. all the all the life on top of the, the soil you know it's just so funny because that it's like that old human way of thinking or something just like some uh, you know very organized rows of one crop and, and, you know, you can see how it makes sense for scaling up a certain project to sell a lot of, of one thing like this. But um, one thing I've kind of had a, a vision of for a long time now is these inner city, like you were talking about earlier with these uh, communities. Maybe you move somewhere. Maybe you just do it where you're at, I, I think. Um, create, like, inner city permaculture, permagora plots mm-hmm. that kind of just are in, you know, separated throughout the city in enough range that can feed the local area with fresh vegetables and, and tomatoes and stuff like that or whatever, you know, as well. But then, like, also taking on this more perennial, um, permanent type uh, thought, like with maybe not even, like, structures. Like, I've always thought, like, indoor structures with hydroponics and whatever we can use, like, technology to feed that area. And and to be clear, like I'm not against the grid. I'm not necessarily against the market. I like um, a thriving market all over the world. I like being able to go buy things at the grocery store from all over the world. But also, there's that local aspect of keeping money local, keeping decisions local, keeping health local, keeping the the neighborhood focused on what they're eating and what and especially those type of nutrients that we're talking about. So I, I think it's both. I don't, like, say, keep it local only. Never buy anything from anywhere else. Like, yeah, we're transporting those things into the city wrong, and we're not, you know, using fossil fuels to transport everything all over is a problem, and we need to address that. And 
the, the sales tax, honestly, that's a problem in a lot of situations where it's shipped in like that. It's coming from a big box grocery store or whatever. So with Permagora, you know, what is the concept there with agorism? Maybe you can help us understand that a little bit better and how you're mixing this in with this, you know, permaculture concept. And again, people can go to permaculture.com as well. Um, Maybe if you're at your computer, pull it up right now, and, and you can look through there as well. While Eric uh, gives us an explanation on that. Mm-hmm. So, when it comes to f- distributing food, when it comes to making sure everybody gets fed, we're in a pickle right now because there are so many areas of the world that are just mostly concrete, and that's where most of the people are. So we are going to have to continue to ship food. I agree with you that it's not like we're trying to end international shipping and the the idea of getting things from all around the world conveniently. It's just all about only when we have to, right? Like there are some things that you can only get from far away. And there's a lot of stuff that comes from really far away that we could be growing locally. And so that's an easy first step is figure out what can we grow locally and let's really make that's that local market the one that most people turn to for their produce for or whatever, you know, be it meats or be it soap or anything that is being made that people use, most of that stuff can be made in people's homes. It can be made in local community centers. And so Permagora is the combination of permaculture and agorism, which basically uses the permaculture design techniques and the capacity to produce a yield, to produce product. That's the basis of the economy of the market of the agora. And the agora is really the social end of it. It's the relationship amongst people and how they make deals, how they how they exchange their life energy via what is now done through money, but really it's it's via things that we have put our life into. And you spend a lot of time growing or making something, you've put your life into that. And so when you give it off to somebody, in order to regain that life energy, you want something in return. And this is just basic. Everyone understands that. But we just have this overly complex system of how we do that very simple thing. And we do it in a very complex way that is needlessly complex. It doesn't have to be that way. So I visualize local communities that are, you know, we don't have to bulldoze all of our current infrastructure and go build fresh new things out in the woods. That's not the idea. The idea is that we need to take the infrastructure we have and we need to retrofit it and we need to change things around. And most of the parking lots need to become growing spaces and, I mean, again, it, 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 there's two different levels of this. There's what would we do if we had the if we had all of the bureaucrats and all of the, the the public funding. In other words, if we had funding, what would we do? Or what do we do now that we don't, and we're all just trying to piece this together as individuals who don't have a lot of money? In the in the latter case, where we're just kind of doing it with whatever we've got and we're poor, all we can do is try and grow things where we can and try and be more active in the local food production markets because they're already there. Every town you go to has probably got a farmer's market. That's a growing trend. This is this idea is not just amongst radical liberty people or permaculture people. The whole world is getting on board with this reality that, hey, I like local food and I like to support my local farmers. And buying local, that's always something that people have understood. And Walmart kicking out the mom and pops from everybody's town, most people didn't like that. That wasn't a popular thing. They just sort of felt like pressured into it because everything's so much cheaper there and they just couldn't afford to, to, to support the mom and pop anymore. But I think we got to flip that around and we've got to – create more of a social incentive for people to 
at even greater expense sometimes for people to go and shop local. And permaculture gives us the tools for how we can grow all that food and where we can grow it. Agorism is going to involve – or applying agorism in this case involves getting in charge of our local uh, councils and our, our, our county governments. That's achievable. We can't ever – as a people reclaim this nation because it's too big and there's too many different people with different ideas. But if we picked – like here's a great idea that I and several others have had. Let's say you found – like kind of like with uh, Free State of New Hampshire, they like said, all right, we're going to pick the freest state possible and we're going to mass move there, right, and just like take that place. Imagine if you had networks of people, tens of thousands of people who wanted to do this and were willing to move, able to move. If you just moved to a county that had low population and was already kind of – savvy to these ideas and you basically just doubled the town's population by everybody showing up and now you vote and now you've got a whole county that you can control via – I mean I say you. What I mean is people with like minds could use that existing infrastructure of government, of those fleet of vehicles they have, all those buildings they have, the budgets, the, the way that they get their money. They've got this whole system set up. I'm an advocate of using that system but dismantling the aspects of it that violate the non-aggression principle, dismantling the aspects of it that violate people's freedoms. Still, though, infrastructure itself is still totally good. We could just be applying it to more worthwhile projects rather than fracking. We could be spending that money on putting in gardens and putting in hydroponic facilities and putting in parks that are also food, playgrounds and art space and stage spaces and places to swim and climb and train and gyms, outdoor gyms, exercise. All of these things that people are going and spending all this money on in box stores and in strip malls ought to be in the center of town surrounding the main buildings of the town. Like, you know, in the old town, if you go to an old town, there's like a courthouse and there's like a main street with like stone and brick buildings with shops. That's like the main thing that humans used to do is build that town center and everybody focused around it. And the advent of cars and now of the, the digital age has sort of spread everybody out. But I like the idea of reclaiming these decaying downtowns and not just reclaiming them by putting in good installations but also by eventually through activism and through participation at a local level getting control of the governance of it so that we as local communities can decide to make good decisions even if the state and the feds don't agree it doesn't matter i mean that's already happening with the with a lot of what is sometimes called municipal civil disobedience or the states when they pass cannabis laws or they pass laws that the feds don't approve of they just did it anyway, and that's the whole trick is the emperor does wear no clothes. If you just do it anyway, they really don't have the power to stop us. Right, so, right. Yeah. And I think like – you know, I, I agree with you that keeping the money local and the decisions local rather than giving it to Walmart because that's externalizing it to something that you know is using the government in a lot of cases that because of the state apparatus, those big monopolies on things aren't – uh, like a good form of hierarchy, they be they become very destructive and just adding to the problem, and then they want to keep that paradigm in place to keep things the same. So I, I totally agree with that. But then another thing, kind of there that I was thinking about while you were talking was this idea of of leaving where you are to someday later build a place for yourself in a community that is um, going to start to solve a lot of these problems that we're talking about. And I, I myself am doing that now. I'm, I'm looking forward a little bit and trying to get some land and we'll eventually, you know, build that up to something that could be homesteaded. But, um, you know, I think people wait, though, for that to start acting. And I don't, I don't think you're one of those people, but 
in, in the, the human mind and kind of how it works is always like it's someday later in the future. Yeah. I'm going to start working on all these things, you know. Can't do it until. Yeah. But right now, like you're talking about, the farmer's markets are one way to support uh, that, that local thriving um, agora kind of like concept that's growing. I mean, because those farmer's markets are regulated, taxed, you know, a lot of the time they have to get uh, all kinds of licenses and stuff like that still to set up shops. So we're trying to go levels beyond that and create little like agorist pop-up markets. We even did one of those here with my local activist group, the Salt Lake Freedom Hive. We had a pop-up agora plant exchange and people just brought extra starters. You know, we did it a weekend after Mother's Day. So anybody that had leftover plants to come and sell, we, we did that and we sold a lot of plants and we we want to create more of that environment of just free exchange among people without, you know, having to go through any kind of like Goldman Sachs sponsored, you know, community garden association that's got Wells Fargo funding behind it, you know, so, so definitely keeping, keeping it conscious too, though, you know, and, and having feet on the ground, you know, spirituality, if you want to say like, don't, wait till you have to leave to some other forest later in somewhere else to start working on what you can do right here and I always tell myself that because we are planning someday maybe go somewhere else but then right now we're in Salt Lake City so I'm actively working here to bring these things about and we have uh, permaculture you know like you said uh, Derek Bros and his crew is coming through with a decentralize your life tour and we're going to be doing a permaculture action day that day and we've been, you know, networking with the permaculture community here and just trying to, you know, and that's really what all you have to start doing at first is just the networking process. And then you, the, the work that needs to be done and the things you can start participating in at that point are, are really endless. And it's just how can you best, you know, utilize your your uh, abilities to, to participate because it's not like you have to build something or come up with some new ideas. I mean, these ideas are all here for us now to start acting now there's no we don't all need to develop brand new concepts and and things to to fix a lot of these problems that we're facing as a, as a human race we just need to start paying attention to the the solutions that are already here and pick up the tools and start using them in a lot of cases you know totally um so um tell us a little bit about your your novels um you went into one uh, portland a little bit but you know is that what are you using those writing skills for to do now? Like you said, it's kind of your message is starting to come out more in those works. And, and do you plan to continue that work? Definitely. I, I won't, I can't stop myself from writing frequently. So first of all, I just get ideas for stories. I'd say probably two a week, you know, that often. And a lot of them just come and go. Some of them I get so excited about that. I just have to start working on. And I've got tons of stories that I would love to someday write, which ones I will write. We'll see. But I've got several books that I'm working on already, one of which is about halfway done. It's historical fiction. And then that is a little bit related to all this. It's about building uh, intentional community 150 years ago in the American West back when there was freedom. You know, Imagine if we could have done it back then. Um, but then I do – I have a ton of other books, a couple that are almost ready to, to be – they're almost finished. But I've been focusing mostly on Portland lately. My earlier books, that all three that are published on my website, besides Portland, the Final Years of Branderley, Lost Angels, and A Savage Life, they're just novels that I wrote just because the idea came, and I had the time when I was younger and I was traveling and didn't have the, the rat race to run. I didn't have the obligation of having to be at work or school all the time. 
I had time to write these books and I wrote them fairly quickly and easily. And they're just, you know, kind of pulp stories, some adventure drama, historical fiction, um, some sci- the brand legend is a sci-fi story. They, they are sort of just an extension of who I am. I'm just, I, I, I channel ideas. I don't really write the stories. I just somehow discover the stories out there in the astral world. And I, I bring them in and I add, of course, my personality to them, but I definitely plan to continue to write. I'd love to write a sequel to Portland. And the Branderly Agenda is actually part of the trilogy, and I'm about halfway through the second one, and I've already got the whole the whole trilogy is all written out in terms of plot. I actually did write it years ago, and had to start it over because the writing wasn't great, and because I had to change so much. Once I came to, you know, when people say, "Oh, when did you wake up? When did you come to?" It's like, "Oh yeah, I kind of realized that the world isn't what I thought it was back then." And rewriting that story had to reflect a little bit broader of a perspective, I think, but. Um, also with writing, you know, I'm not, I haven't, since I finished Portland, I haven't been write, really working on any fiction. I've mostly been writing articles on Permagora and I've been working on creating, it's a combination of documenting what's going on and it's a little bit of raw, raw, like trying to pump people up, trying to inspire people to go out and participate and see what's going on around them and find out where the Agora is in their neighborhood, where are the people growing food. Where are the people who are coming up with solutions? And just get into conversation. Get into relationship. We need to be in relationship with each other in our communities. And so because of that, my writing, I just don't write much anymore. Like I'll, I'll sit down and write an article or two a day, and that's about the most I get in. While I've been touring, I've been so busy that my time on the computer is real limited. I'm actually out there in the world meeting people and a lot of driving too and just going from place to place. And so – it's been hard on me because I love writing and I miss it. I miss having those like Stephen King calls it falling into the hole when you basically co- go into the story yourself. And as you're writing, you're not you're not here. You're there. You're you're there with it, and you're watching it happen and trying to keep up with your fingers. So I miss that. It's been it's been it's been a long time since I've gotten to really do that, and I expect I will again. But I've got a lot on my plate. I'm taking on a pretty big project here with Permagora and with combining. You know, I'm combining so many different things, and almost, uh, advice I often get when I talk to people is, you know, you should just try and focus on one thing. Try and just narrow your focus down, and it's like, nah, it's not possible for me. I got too much going on in my mind, and I see too many areas that need work, and I feel particularly well-equipped to do several different things that I'm trying to turn them into one thing. I'm trying to combine my desire and my inclination to do adventure travel and go out and explore the natural world and explore other cultures. I'm trying to combine that with our goal of unschooling and raising our kids in a totally free way. And I'm trying to combine that also with the ideas of permaculture and the ideas of agorism. These, all these sort of different movements, I'm trying to make my work be a synthesis of all of those things. And it's, right. uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot to take on and who knows when I'll have time to do all the things that are on my list, but I just yeah. take it as I, as I go. That, that, that's how you embody it. You know, that's how, how you embody what your, what your thoughts are and what you're trying to work on is actually doing it all. So if you can juggle it all, I say keep it up. And <laughs> I think you've been doing great work and, oh, thank you. you know, I, I kind of been doing the same thing here. I have too, a little bit too much going on, but at the same time, as long as I'm getting the work done and, yeah. and not feeling like there's a rush either though, because we should, we should be easy on ourselves too, you know, and, and move through things at a natural, at a natural pace to keep, you know the um to keep up with it over time to keep that uh i can't think of the word right now but to you know to the to sustain um that long through like we're going to need to here to get these ideas out fully and keep pushing it forward and pass that baton down 
yeah. you know, let's keep our endurance up by by just taking it easy a little bit too. But then, you know, we can do a lot now with the tools we have available to ourselves. It's it's so true. And that's, why I think, why we feel overwhelmed to do a lot because we have all the tools available now to do what we need to do. And so I, I, like you, feel like, okay, let's just do it then, you know, let's just jump in and get our hands dirty. Yeah. And you've been traveling all around. Um, you, Like you said, um, before we were talking, you went to Anar- Anarchapulco recently. I was chasing you down then, talking about trying to get an interview. Um, I think you were down in, like, South America or something. Yeah. Um, you, you've been talking about doing these permaculture plots and maybe even a tour coming up. Do you want to tell us a little bit, bit about that concept and maybe taking these things around and trying to get uh, spread the idea more? Sure. Um, you know, this tour has been, the tour I've just been on, has been largely a tour of projects where people are doing positive things, largely permaculture or intentional community related. Some of it's just the liberty movement. It's anarchy groups or it's agorist groups. And I'm just trying to visit all these places and to take, take make a story out of it. And what I'm realizing would be a really cool thing to do would be to make a show, like a series of adventures that we, my family, go on. Maybe some other people, too. I love the idea of it being a whole crew. But, you know, the bigger it gets, the more expensive it gets. But I'm trying to get the funding together to do an actual show where we go all around the world and visit different permaculture projects or any kind of community project where there is some example of some of these things we're talking about in the, you know, being, being created in the real world and to make that show follow us as we go on these adventures and point out some of the things they're doing, have short little talks and lessons. And, you know, people could learn so much from us just going to these places and talking to the people who are there and picking their brains, getting their ideas, seeing some of their ideas that they came up with being used and implemented. And I'm hoping to, get the organization together to do that so we can do that next year, 2018. And I don't really know where we'll go. I, I, I think in Europe, we were supposed to go to Europe this summer, but we just got overwhelmed with all that we've done. We just, my family and I just got back together and we've been traveling for so long. We're looking for a place to, to cool our heels for a while rather than taking on another huge trip right now. So next year we're hoping to do that. And yeah, what I want to do is just visit these projects and give people examples of what's possible as well as create, be, create a database of options for people who want to maybe try something new. Because most of these places, they take volunteers. They let you come and camp or sleep in the dorms or even rent a little cabin at different degrees of commitment and financial arrangement. There's all these different ways to do it, and that is where the Agora also exists, people making outside-of-the-system deals. It's not just about going around government when it comes to agorism. It's not just about doing things that are black market, quote, illegal, even if they're not harming anyone. It's about doing things where we're not just paying into this system that is taking more money than it should have to be. An example would be couch surfing. That, to me, is great agorism. That's an example of people finding ways to to get around the expenses of having to get hotels and making use of resources that are already there. People have couches, and they don't – you know, some people like to meet people from all around the world, and it really works out symbiotically. And so – I love the idea of creating a sort of similar to couch surfing network that is based out of eco-village community permaculture places, agorist places, hubs. And so, you know, you, you don't, you don't, yeah, you, you build your own deal. What are you going to do there? How are you going to pay? Are you going to pay? Like some people don't, some people, couch surfing I think is free. You don't pay to do it. Um, but, you know, when you're using infrastructure, using electricity, 
it's fair to contribute. It's like Craigslist rideshare, right? You, you chip in for gas. That's fair. You're not. It's cheaper than a Greyhound, though. And so that's the idea: is you're making it cheaper for the for the person traveling, and you're bringing energy and resources to some of these projects that are often short on hands. And so, um, that all could be developed over time. Especially the more of these places I visit and I talk to the people that are there, the, the people that work there, or the owners, the founders, they're often very open to these things. And I really want to just build more cohesion amongst the the movement, amongst the people who are participating in all of these things, so that we have a system that helps people it's basically like a pipeline from the the matrix to the new paradigm and we're just going to start making paving the way and making trails for people to follow so they can get out and as i go around touring these projects i'm trying to show people how awesome it is and trying to give them a sense of hey you know you could go and stay at a place like this instead of going to college you could travel to all these different permaculture installations around the world and learn how to do all these cool things and it'd cost you a tenth as much and those are just sort of the, some of the, the general ideas that come up, come to mind when we think about this stuff is all these systems that are really expensive and are channeling money into the hands of the wrong people, they could be – we could create alternatives to them that are yeah. cheaper and better. I, the word I think of is like decentralization, you know, but they're yeah. building that network of, of a decentralized network. Totally. You know, and, and so – I think it's cool that you're kind of going around and trying to build like the the neurons almost in that brain. So, yeah. you know, like we we see Derek Rose doing that currently with the Conscious Resistance totally. Tour, but you were talking about doing like the permaculture tour and then mixing in like crypto and the counter economy and just the concepts and we're like you said these are the ideas you're coming up with and I think they're awesome, but then like we can't even imagine the possibilities beyond that. So, like you were saying, like you can decentralize, like the education system could be done through these networks. Um, so when you're when when someone's interested in learning about permaculture, they can just go do like entrepreneurial ventures in that community where there is no central like government permission slip of you're not allowed to do this or like yeah that's the bureaucracy not, you know, <laughs> they get created because of those. You got to pay us to do this and you got to get this degree to go that way and certificates and this and that you know to to prove that you know what you're talking about and um but freedom cells is another thing to bring on top of that what you're talking about. We in the Salt Lake Freedom Hive here we kind of promote the freedom cell concept and we're building our own freedom cells and getting other people to build theirs. And, and I don't need to go into depth on what that is and how it all works here because we've done that previously on the show. Yeah. But um, you know, bring that actually has a website with with a map, and you can find the people, the food not bombs community in that area, or you know, like the the, the people doing a meetup or a Skillshare at least, or like you're saying, that could develop into like Cell Four One One offers ri- uh, ride sharing now. Um, like it's not even like Uber now it's just I mean and you got to protect yourself using all these apps as well because there's going to be people out there that use them in the wrong way yeah. but you know promoting the apps like nextdoor.com as well so we, we get on nextdoor.com and our community here just gets on and constantly keeping each other up to date about things we're seeing going on uh, activities that may be nefarious but then also good events coming up yeah. and what people can offer Hey, I mow lawns. Hey, I cut hair. Hey, I babysit. And these, this is completely decentralized. People just coming on and sharing with each other without any form of permission slip or I gotta beg <laughs> you to do this or that. And and it's a it's a good example of of what you're talking about. So switching gears a little bit here, I want to get into your flavor of like unschooling, uh, homeschooling, 
um, peaceful parenting, these concepts. Do you, you have children, right? Yeah, I do. I have three kids. Right. And do you, you, you do like unschooling or homeschooling? Yeah, one and the same. I mean, really, more unschooling. We don't we don't push a lot of academics on them. We don't make them do their do certain lessons every day. We just let them live their lives. We try to introduce things that'll get them thinking. We try and come up with games and things for them to do that will develop those same academic ideas, but just in a less of a schoolroom environment. And we've been doing this for most of their lives. Our oldest daughter did spend a year in school while we lived in. A, a certain town that we lived in in Oregon, we put her in a public uh, charter school that was Montessori-based because we thought, okay, that's a little bit better. But still, she spent most of her day at the desk doing worksheets, and that's just not what kids should be doing with their bodies and their, their minds at that age. So we've done very little of the public school system, and that's a big problem for us is the fact that that system is like I was talking about earlier at the church. They've got all the infrastructure. They've got all the perfect everything, but the program that they're doing is terrible, and they really – I would love to see there be a free school for people to put their kids in that would actually give the kids a good real education and becoming a good person and developing real skills and learning how to do stuff. But um, I talk a lot about unschooling in Portland, which the character whose name is Portland is uh, unschooled by her parents. And what they do is they just take her all around the community to different places and people. And whenever she takes interest in something, they arrange private lessons or private get-togethers where she can go and hang out with them and work for them and learn from them. And I think that that's sort of like the whole community ought to be teaching the kids. It's not just the parent's job. It's not just the teacher's job. It's like every so often everyone in the community ought to have a few kids there helping them, learning from them, just watching, all of that. It doesn't have to be this big process where we we don't have to spend so much money on schools schools cost too much money because they have this huge building that they're air conditioning and all this infrastructure which it's nice to have that but they only have to have so many of them because the kids are in there all day long and they shouldn't be they should be going around doing stuff in the communities and the community should be more involved we shouldn't have to be paying all these staff and all these people to just come in and do this job when that ought to be just sort of an extension of what and again i'm speaking theoretically to a society that doesn't currently exist a lot would have to change for what I'm saying to work. But if it, we got to the ultimate degree, I wouldn't think of what people do in interaction with the kids. It wouldn't be like work. It wouldn't be like school. It would just be natural. If you think about how kids are when they're in an area with extended family, they have lots of aunts and uncles. They have lots of cousins and people their age and relatives around. They kind of go from place to place. Someday they'll be with this guy. Just uncle so-and-so will take them fishing. They're just learning from everybody, right? The village. It takes a village. That's the old phrase. And we have been trying to unschool our kids without that village, and we find elements of it. We, we, we get t- hints and tastes of it when we do potlucks or when we go to events where there's homeschooling groups, homeschool hiking group. We were part of one of those in Oregon. It was great. We loved all the families. But we got to get together once a week at best, usually less often, and it's just everyone's so busy. Our lives are so full, and there's just there's so much obligation on the adult's part to do what they're doing that they don't have time to take care of the kids, which is why public schools are what they are. They're basically just a place to put the kids because the adults are too busy to hang out with them. And that's real sad to me. And so part, the main way I've tried to do unschooling is just to hang out with my kids and to play with them. They, all they need to do for the first many years of their life is to play. They don't really need to learn a bunch of stuff specifically to learn it. They will learn while they're playing. They'll ask questions and you can answer them and they'll learn better if they're asking of their own volition than if you're just 
giving them facts and telling them to memorize them. So I've really enjoyed the, the experience. It's been also challenging, though, and it's hard because I often just don't have the time that it takes to do it. You really need time. And if you don't have at least one full-time stay-home parent, you can't really unschool. You can you can ignore your children and let them learn on their own, which is a form of unschooling, but really unschooling involves more interaction and involves more participation. And so it's it's not something a whole lot of people can do because of our current economic model. See, this all ties back together. That's why we need to change that too. It's not just the kids that need to have time to do what they want and to learn on their own. It's the adults too. The adults shouldn't have to be all going off to jobs they don't like. We should all be doing things that we enjoy that also contribute to society at large that therefore – provide us with some sort of return on our investment, payment, whatever it is. Yeah, I hear you. And I think a lot of people are in that position where they just actually can't do it because of, you know, maybe an economic situation. But then other people are, aren't doing it because they don't maybe understand the full scope of of the harm they're doing to their children by putting them into the, you know, 15,000-hour indoctrination camp K-12 through system, you know. Yeah. Um, but other people do have an opportunity to do it and choose not to because they're a little overwhelmed. I, I hear a lot of people say, I couldn't do that. I don't know how people do that. I personally couldn't do that. And the thing of it is, is like, it's not up to you. It's not, you're not going to have to take everything out of your head and put it in your child's head and make them learn all this stuff. Like you said, I mean, the children kind of learn naturally. And so the first mistake people do is they start to compare a first grader that's being unschooled or homeschooled and directly compare to the, the children in the indoctrination camps and then going, oh, well, these kids aren't at the same level. They're not learning the exact same thing. These kids are learning how to read and write at this point, and, and this person's not. But, but like, honestly, if you project forward these children and when they're, like, 18, I guarantee that that homeschooled child, if the, ch if the parents are um, instilling critical thinking, you know, how to learn... Um, right now, the world's set up so that once that child is curious and and knows how to critically think and learn, he can go out and learn whatever, or he or she can go out and learn whatever they need to learn at that point. And you're just the facilitator. So it's not a parent needs to teach the child everything like in a school. Like parents picture it like it's going to be a school environment that they're going to have to get up with a chalkboard right. and start explaining multiplication to, to their child, you know. But but it's more about providing the petri dish for that to to sprout or yeah. um, you know that child to sprout open and you're really just kind of taking this ball that's already rolling which is a, a human being and they're and they're a live living thing they're not you know um, your property and uh, you know we need to definitely include peaceful parenting into this and questioning authority you know. Um, inspiring rebellion in a way, which is makes it that much harder <laughs> and more fun for parenting. Tell me about it. It's not it's, suppressing that either, right? Not yeah. being the tyrant at home because you homeschool. Now you're just going to be the tyrant at home, yeah. taking the teacher's role as you know the end all be all of everything I say you need to do. Yeah, the authority. Um, we're we're dealing with that now. You know, there's the challenging of what we're saying, and then we we can't really necessarily say what I say goes and. And, you know, because I said so, the, the, I, I can't say that because I know for a fact that my six-year-old, for example, needs to be questioning me and my what I'm saying and make sure that he's not trusting me as the end-all, be-all of, of everything either. So. Yeah. Yeah, um, thanks for getting into that. Now, I wanted to get back to something you said in the beginning, which was that you had a spiritual experience in a lake, you said. 
Yeah. Um, can you get into more of that? Because, you know, I don't want to jump over that. I think that might be an important point that you went through, or what was it, a book, or, a, you know, was there something going on around that time in your life that kind of brought you into a new way of looking at things? Definitely. So I'll try and keep it short. This is a this is a pretty big story, but um, it wouldn't have been possible. It wouldn't have happened had I not had my first experience with magic mushrooms, psychedelic mushrooms, about three or months or so before that. And that was an experience that tuned me into the reality that we're in a really unsafe position as a species right now. Our society is unstable, and we're all, we're built on this really house of cards complex system that could collapse at any point and leave us all dying in pain. <laughs> and so I realized that we didn't know how food com- where food comes from. We don't know how our machines work. We don't know how anything works. Most people are just going along depending on all this stuff without knowing anything about it. And I thought that was dangerous. I wanted to, to learn more about it, so I started researching. That's where I learned about I, I discovered a book called Final Empire, and I read that book, and it really put it in the way that I understood and I got. I was like, yes, that is it. It is all about the, the culture. It is all about the philosophy of our civilization. What is it we're here to do? If we're just here to rape nature and take all the spoils, then we're going to end up with a dead world. If we're going to try and actually live in harmony with this world, we're going to have to re-examine a lot of things. So with all that as a sort of backdrop, I went to visit some family up in Canada. And on my grandma's side of the family, we had, uh, the family has a cottage on this lake, this beautiful lake in western Quebec. And I was out there, and one day I just got a strange inclination to swim all the way across the lake. It's about a mile and a half across, and I knew it would take all day, but I didn't care. I, I can swim all day long, and I wanted to do it. I thought that would be such a great like just way to spend my afternoon. I could turn out on my back and look at the sky. I'm in this beautiful water, and I was out there swimming across, and as I was going, I started getting thirsty, and I just instinctively started drinking the water. And then I had like the programmed voice panic in my head. Don't, don't do that. You'll get sick. You could get poisoned. Who knows what's in this water? The fear that we can't even drink water from the ground really did say that jarred me loose. It, it broke some sort of major piece of the programming that's been trapping my mind, that was trapping my mind. Once I realized that we can't even drink the water, even in a pretty nice, clean, pristine place like that, I was scared to drink the water. And my question was, what kind of a species or what kind of a, of a group of people poisons their own water? How could we do that? And as I was asking these questions, I started to like hear and feel a response. And it wasn't like I heard it audially and I like was looking for the source. I, it was internal, but it was very much a voice that was a feminine uh, sort of spiritual divine entity. Call it the goddess, call it the divine feminine, whatever. It was some sort of divine feminine energy that was like, yes, it's true. You guys have poisoned your water, and this place is in a bad shape. You guys are really screwing things up. And basically she said, I need your help. I need you to help me fix it. You basically have all this zeal and this passion and power that you're not even using, and we need it for the movement. And that's not verbatim. That's just sort of how I you know, translate it. So I basically felt this major like new purpose in life that I needed to be doing something about these problems. And so – that night or the next night, I slept on the not on the water, but like right by the water, so that at the dawn I could get up on the kayak and go out to this island. And as I was trying to sleep, I actually didn't sleep hardly at all that night. I just started getting these massive downloads, and I had my you know spiral notebooks, and I got them out, and I just started writing and drawing, and I got this massive download about a lot of stuff, but particularly about this village, this community that was built around a lake, 
in somewhere like where I was. And it was this new paradigm community of people who lived this totally imbalanced, happy, healthy life of simplicity, but with appropriate technology to make things easy. And this whole vision ultimately became the basis of a, a series of books I've been working on. And um, it it really just was my first example of what an eco-village was. And I didn't even really know what one was at that time. But I had this vision of that culture, and it really made me want to pursue that and to live that way myself. And shortly after that experience, I started researching eco-villages and trying to figure out where I could go and what I could do. Now, it wasn't for a couple more years that I finally ended my vagabonding and started doing that. In fact, it was almost four years later that I finally moved to Oregon because this is the kind of thing that, for, as for with a lot of people, once you realize it, that's one step. Once you get the, 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 the gumption to take the step and walk away is another. And I had already walked away. I wasn't living tied to the rat race, but I was still living a conventional life. I was still eating junk food, drinking alcohol a whole lot, and just not really caring about my impact on the planet. And to get to where I was really ready to change all of my lifestyle and my practice and my habits in order to be more conscious of that took time, and I had to really begin my spiritual practice. So that's why I call it a spiritual experience was because it began my spiritual practice once again. I had been sort of agnostic for many years after leaving the church. And once I had that experience, I couldn't deny the spiritual reality anymore. I could feel it now. It was like all of a sudden I was tuned in to all these things that I'd been missing all along. And once I started paying attention to them, they pointed me in the direction of having a spiritual practice, meditating, doing yoga, being more conscious of my diet, and being more conscious of my consumer choices. And all of those things really led me to the ecology, the eco-movement, the permaculture movement. But it began for me as a spiritual pro pro process where I was – coming to terms with the fact that it's up to us to take care of this place. It's my responsibility to live in a clean world. It's not some bad guys out there that are doing it, even though it is true that they are doing it and they are more responsible for a lot of the mess than I personally am, but it is my responsibility. I can't just sit around and gripe and complain that they're all so bad. I got to do something myself. And it really you know, lit me up to get out there and start doing more. And it was... It was a great it was a great experience and I still think of that as probably one of the, the biggest moments in my life of a turning point that that really set me on the path I'm on now was that day. Nice, yeah. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that with us. Sure. And it it's cool cuz I kind of had a similar experience having to do with water huh. and those types of things and just the realization, you know, occurring uh, so many like a series of realizations that once you get to that point you really can't deny it like you said but that's just like really a half of a first step into something new like you said because it takes a while to get the engines turning yeah and the steam rolling to really <laughs> and, you, and you also feel the weight like when you had that experience and when i had a, a similar experience of kind of recognizing our power to change things mm -hmm. and then my level of not doing that and then <laughs> not lining those things up and realizing how much work you have to go for a while can be a big kind of a almost a burden in a way or or you're scared of of kind of opening that door because you know what it means but honestly you know that's why it's it's better to try to live in the moment and just take day by day but but with those realizations in mind and so you're consciously moving forward you know in the correct manner and and really that's all that's being asked of most people at this time is to go inside and do some inner work or spiritual work like you're saying and listen to that still small voice, whether it be God, whether it's yourself, whether it's the human race speaking to you over time, epigenetically, whatever it is, um, 
that needs to be listened to more at this time because it's going to, you know, get you acting in a way like like with someone like yourself or I've had a similar experience or I hear this a lot from people even with that particular entheogen that you mentioned or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like a lot of people kind of use that to spark off something that they already know they want to do, but that kind of sets things in motion because because of the experience, because of, of a vision or a voice that you might assist yourself with to make changes that I think deep down you know you, know you already want to do. Yeah. Um, but then <laughs> that link to water is interesting for, because for me it was like when I stopped drinking the fluoridated poisoned tap water, like you said, <laughs> like I can't even drink the water, things really changed for me and that was a big shocker. Like, wow, like that's happening. And that was that big of a thing for me. Like, what else is there here? And then, yeah. so it all kind of kicked it off, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, what are some books that you've read? You don't have to go over like every book you've ever read or something that you want to throw out. Some, you know, there's Flourish, uh, Robert Podolsky. I don't know if you've heard of that. Yeah. Kind of talking about this stuff or anything like that in this <clears> realm <throat> that we're talking about. Can you drop a few that I can throw in the show notes? Absolutely. Um... So books that have influenced me, I mentioned one, Final Empire, by a man named William Kotke. He's a good friend of mine now. I met him after I got into his book. Um, some other books would be The One Straw Revolution by Masanobu Fukuoka. And he's got another book called The Natural uh, Way of Farming, which is more philosophical and more – it's a bigger book. One Straw Revolution is more condensed for sort of mainstream publication. Natural Way of Farming is a much deeper look into his philosophy – and uh, I love the book Sepp Holzer's Permaculture. Sepp Holzer is a sort of accidental permaculturist up in Austria who just created an awesome system. Permaculture is innate. It's natural, and it's a, t- it's a system that has been named by certain people and a culture that's been created around it. But a lot of people practice it just naturally. Sepp Holzer is one of those. And once he discovered that there was this whole movement, he's like, oh, yeah, that's what I'm doing, and now he's on board with it. He's got a great book that just gives you good examples of how you can do amazing things in permaculture. Um, now, of course, in another area, I really like Samuel L. Konkin III's book, uh, The New Libertarian Manifesto. I think that there's nobody that ever lays it out as plainly as he as to what we can do to solve this problem. And let's see if I can think – oh, another great introduction permaculture book is Toby Hemingway's Gaia, uh, Gaia's Garden. Toby Hemingway is a permaculturist too. It's, it's kind of like a, a textbook. But it's just digestible. The the Permaculture Designer's Manual, which was written by Bill Mollison, one of the founders of Permaculture, is an amazing book. But it's very – it's a tome. It's dense and it's just so packed with information that it's a little overwhelming. And so it's more not – it's really not a beginner's book even though he wrote it. To explain permaculture, I feel like it helps to have an introduction before you start diving into his work. And Gaia's Garden is a great book for that. Um, so yeah, that's just a few. I, I could keep going. Yeah. But <laughs> I mean, Of course you could, but if you do, it's just – I'll have to keep adding to the list of yeah. books I won't be able to read someday, you know. But Exactly. <laughs> uh, no, that, that's great. I'd like to drop the books that have influenced you on the direction you're on because pe- people will pick that up if they need to, and I can leave that in the show, no- show notes. And I like to get those books in my in my possession um, at least. You know, we all I, I like to create my own kind of little archive, and I'm, I'm working on that. That's a big thing I'm kind of working on personally that doesn't have anything to do with reaching out is just creating like a personal archive of all this stuff. And and this interview series is part of that, but then something that can last through. Um, Anyway, I I appreciate you giving some books out kind of, you know, we're going to round up the interview uh, with, I'd I'd like to get out like a message that you have for people coming down the road, listening to this 
Um, it, with the struggle in mind that you went through, that four-year period even, there's people, I think, that are listening to this that are right in that stage of maybe knowing, but not quite, like, reaching out yet and doing. Um, kind of give your ideas for them, and, and if they're picking up these breadcrumbs, you mm-hmm. know, down the road, you know, finish off with that, and then we'll we'll drop some show no- uh, some links for you at the end. Okay. So... One thing that I think is real common is for people to kind of catch wind of this idea and to see how this might happen for some people, but then think, but I can't do that because I've got all these obligations. I've got all this debt or I've got house payments. There's all these things that people think hold them back from getting free and changing their life. And in a lot of cases, you are going to have to deal with stuff like that. Not all debt, I think, are we obligated to pay off. That's somewhat controversial, but I think some debts are, you know, they're, they're sort of part of a bigger, a larger scam that's being pulled on humanity, and I don't feel any guilt about just walking away from stuff like that. But when it comes to can I do it, what will happen to me, what, it's a security issue. People are afraid that if they walk away from their job and their apartment or their house or whatever that they're not going to have a place to live, that they're going to not have any money, that they're going to become homeless, that they're going to have some horrible thing happen to them. And my message to people who want to change their life but – feel that they can't because they want security is that you can still have security in the agora and in the counter-economic system. It's not the same kind, and there are some sacrifices you make, especially if you don't already have a good network, if you don't have a good connection, if you don't have a great setup to go to. But part of what I'm trying to do is to create more of a network, a system that helps people find that. It's a sort of matchmaking setup where you know if you want out and you don't know where to go, well, maybe we can help you. Maybe we, we know what where other projects are. Maybe we can place you with somebody. But in the meantime, it, it just, just even without that network already existing, it's possible to find it yourself. You could do all the work that I do when I'm looking for communities to go visit. Get on in Fellowship for Intentional Communities or the Global Eco Village Network. Nextdoor is a great one. If you live in a local area and you're trying to stay in your area but you want a, a change in lifestyle, if you're looking to go elsewhere in the world, there's all these databases of of projects and so it's through your willingness to work and your willingness to live in a little bit less of a conventional setup like in a dorm style or in a tiny house or camping if you're willing to do stuff like that for short term it's not like you're going to live that way the rest of your life but if you're willing to make that sacrifice then you can not have to worry about all these other things like what about this payment what about this payment how will I afford it it's super cheap to do it and a lot of communities will feed you and house you and you won't have to have any expenses assuming you're willing to give up your phone and all these things. And that's another issue. But um, I guess I'm just trying to say that it's possible to get out and still be comfortable and still have your needs met. And it's actually way more exciting, way more fun. It's a total adventure because you don't know what's going to happen, where you're going to land. You don't necessarily know what's going to happen next year. You don't have that long-term security. But I feel like you're built by, by, by changing our lives. We're building a longer-term security than even a pension or any of that stuff gives you. We're building intergenerational security. And so I really encourage people to explore options and to believe in themselves, believe that they, you guys have what it takes to, to do this because most of us do. And most of us would be happier if we could break some of these chains and live a little more free. So uh, I definitely want Permagore to be a resource for people who are thinking about it, and I want to see more resources become available to people over the next few years. I think that's important work. Absolutely. And the more people doing that work, the easier it becomes for those people right now who are trying to do that work, but feel, you know, sometimes exhausted, 
doing that work because it is it is a hard time to be putting your efforts in that direction there's so much resistance coming from the other way so the more and more people we can get doing the work you know the fewer hands make lighter work you know we can't leave it up to one figure who's going to come along and save us from all this we all have to join in at this time and uh do start incorporating these concepts into our life so i really appreciate that message i think it's a it's a powerful message to get out and i think this interview dovetails like i said right in with what we've been talking about here on liberty lifestyle so i appreciate you sharing your your liberty lifestyle and the the ideas that you have are right on point i I really love it i think this this type of action is is putting our money where our our federal reserve notes where our mouth is for sure (laughs) and uh how do how do people stay in touch with you? How do they follow up with this um, interview to get more of your work in front of them? Well, permagore.com is my website. It's where I have all of my, my journalism is up there. I also have a YouTube channel called just Eric McCool. My name is the channel. And my Facebook account is also Eric McCool. You can contact me on there. And those are the three that I use. I don't have anything else, so that's the easiest way. Awesome. Well, I appreciate your time, Eric, and uh, have a wonderful day, and we'll get this interview posted soon. Awesome. And hopefully have you on again someday. Thanks, Tyler. It's been great talking with you, and I, uh, I, I thank you also for the work you're doing. It's good work, and I'm glad to, I'm glad to see, you, see you getting in, in contact with so many cool people about all this. Awesome. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Take care.